Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 11 this morning. Psalm 11. We looked at the first portion, the first three verses of Psalm 11 previously. And uh, we asked the question of the trustworthiness of God. Remember, um, if you've, you've seen the sign, um, in God we trust, all others pay cash. Okay, So that's kind of the, the sense here of what we got in the first portion. God alone is trustworthy. And even if the world seems to slide into chaos and it appears that things are out of control, yet God is in control and all those things rest under his sovereignty. The answer really to the question came in verse 7, the Lord is righteous, he loves the righteous, he loves the righteous. So we'll look at that more in just a moment. If you're able, would you stand with me and I'll read from Psalm 11. Our Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us that our eyes are open to your word. Give us the understanding that can come only from you. So we don't just read the words and, and hear them in our minds, but they, they penetrate us and they, they cut right to our hearts. That we know your goodness and we know your love and we know as well as your judgment which will come upon the wicked. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'll read all seven verses. This morning we're only going to, well, since we dealt with the first three, we're going to deal with the last four. So Psalm 11, it's a psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, and the upright will behold his face. This is the inspired word of God for us today, so please be seated. So from the, the first portion, the question is, who do we trust? Well, we trust in the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, we aren't certain what brought these exact words to David, but if we can remember the context of what was going on at this period in time, um, it'll help us understand at least some portion of it. Remember, the context comes from 1 Samuel chapter 22, and David... Um, it's dealing with the murder of the priests of Nob um, by Saul and his henchmen. Okay, so let me give you the story here. Um, Ahimelech, who's a priest, helps David, who is on the run. And he thinks David is doing Saul's business and Saul's work, so he is ready to help him. Now, really, I think Ahimelech liked David, and whether he thought he was doing Saul's work or not was indifferent to him. He liked David. But when it comes to face Saul, and Saul asks for an explanation, Ahimelech goes, well, I thought David was doing your will and your business. That's why I helped him. Saul ordered 
Saul gets really mad, obviously, and, and loses control. And he looks over to his guards and says, guards, I want you to kill Ahimelech and the priests. And the guards, who are obviously a little bit more godly than Saul, goes, we are not raising our hands to God's anointed. We are not going to do that. So Saul turns the other way and looks at one of his um, helpers, one of his servants, who is not an Israelite, and says, hey, will you kill these guys? And he says, sure, I'll do it. So he doesn't just kill Ahimelech, he kills all the priests, and then he takes his guys and goes to the city of Nob and kills everything and everybody in the city. Pretty tough, pretty tough days. So it seems the issue that David is facing in this psalm really is kind of a panic. The people who are loyal to David are, are panicking, and they're concerned about, I mean, are, are Saul going to send people and, and find us and kill us? Well, you know, he chased David through the wilderness for many years. But David in this psalm remains calm. He remains resolute. He remains confident in what the Lord is doing, even in the face of the injustice of the murder of an entire city and what appears to be chaos going on around him. Now, the Psalms in general are just full of experimental knowledge. Experimental knowledge is that common sense knowledge, the things that happen on a regular basis. And we see David write about events in his life, struggles within his own heart, which are pretty much similar to the struggles that we face in our own hearts. I mean, in different periods of his life, uh, he is chased, there is injustice, um, there is struggle, there is his own temptations, uh, on and on and on, and, and we face those things as well. So here in the midst of chaos, David tells us why he can have peace and why he thinks these things are happening. And it comes in two parts, to test the righteous and to destroy the wicked, to test the righteous and to destroy the wicked. Let's look first at the testing of the righteous, okay? And the first place that the righteous are to set their eyes is upon the throne of God. The throne of God is where? Is up. So David says we need to look up to the throne of God because it is from the throne that justice comes. And David has seen that on a regular basis throughout his life. He has seen the Lord be just, seen the Lord take care of him, watch over him. So David looks up to the throne of God to render a just judgment upon the chaos and the injustice that he sees going on in the world. So this leads us to two things. Two things. First, God observes all that people do. He observes all that people do. Look at the second half of verse 4. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. His eyes behold. It's not, that phrase doesn't just mean God sees you. It means he sees you. Okay, we had a professor at college and he had these glasses that were tinted. And he liked to, to lecture and then every once in a while he would come out and he would start to walk around the class like that. And he had these tinted glasses, and you really couldn't see his eyes. And when he would look at you, you know, it was just like, geez, he knows what's going on inside of me. His eyes were just piercing right into my soul. I mean, not really, but we were just little college kids. What do we know? Okay, well, we were scared because he had that look. Well, God knows what goes on inside your heart. It's not just he sees what you do. He sees what we think. He sees our attitudes. He sees when we hold on to pettiness, even though nobody else knows we're being petty. Uh, God knows very clearly. 
Proverbs chapter 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Okay, And it's not just, this, this is God's om, omnipresence, his omniscience. He is everywhere. He knows everything. And it's very clear he knows what goes on in our hearts. So the righteous man may not see God all the time, but God sees the righteous man all the time. There's no attitude, there's no action that is not known by our Heavenly Father. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. So number one, God observes all that people do. And the second thing is God examines the upright. The second half of that last portion of verse 4. His eyelids test the sons of men. Now the biblical word for examine or test is really the same word in, in the Hebrew. So perhaps God tests us by difficult times. We've all faced those times where we thought they were going to crush us and we have come out in a real sense having the dross scraped off of our lives. We come out pure and a better sense of who the Lord is, a better sense of what he's calling us to do and what he's capable of doing if we're simply obedient to him. Now the context here suggests that it's a test that goes along with a judicial trial. So the words are kind of uh, judicial here, in which the test of the righteous, the righteous are approved, and the wicked in the test are condemned. So God not only sees the deeds of men, but pronounces a verdict on the deeds of men. So let's turn over to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to take a better look at what the trials of the righteous mean in our lives. Okay, Paul explains this uh, very well. But in typical Pauline fashion, we've got to, you know, dissect his words and, and make sure that um, we understand the, the, the very straightforward and plain meaning. We may not like the plain meaning. I'm, I'm going to warn you right off. We may not like what we read here in Romans chapter 5. But it is the truth, and we have to wrestle with it. We have to deal with it. So let me read uh, Romans chapter 5. I'll read the first five verses, then we'll go back and chew on it a little bit. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the larger context of what Paul is writing about here are the present benefits and the present realities in our lives of justification. That is, of salvation that has been given to us, that we belong to the Lord and cannot be taken from Him. And he's just been talking about um, uh, the glory to come. He's talking about the present hope and, and how that, should, uh, that present hope should be excited in our lives and in His reality because of that glory that waits ahead for us. And remember, biblical hope is not some pie-in-the-sky hope, like, gee, I... I really hope Randy buys me lunch today. Well, I am. It's, it's be over there. No, no. I, I really hope. I really hope we're having fillet instead of fried chicken for lunch. Okay. Well, that that hope is is beyond us. Okay. 
But biblical hope is based upon the character of God. It is based upon his word. So if God's character is wishy-washy, then our hope has no basis to stand upon. But if God's character is such that he is immutable, unchangeable, then our hope is based upon his promises, which are the same today and yesterday and forever. And they do not change. Okay, That is what our hope is based upon. So he relates this discussion about rejoicing in our tribulations under the umbrella of being justified by our Lord. In fact, he says Christians can actually boast in their trials and tribulations. Now, he's not saying boast in the sense that I was stoned three times this week. How about you? you know, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that we can, we can understand what our tribulations are and boast in the refining process that those sufferings and trials bring in our life. Because we have been justified, we have been put right with God, by God, through Jesus Christ. In other words, it's our free justification enables us to rejoice in our present sufferings. If we did not have this justification, we would not understand the glories of tribulation. We would not understand what these trials and tribulations are doing to us. We would sit there and complain bitterly that that God is unfair. In fact, we would sit there as unbelievers and say, the God that I don't believe in has done this to me, and he is simply, just simply not fair. Pick any tribulation in your life. I've lost a job. I've lost a spouse. I've lost anything. Really, Lord, can I really rejoice in this? How is this possible? How is this possible? But the reasons to rejoice... In tribulation, Paul gives us these reasons. Look at verse 3 as we start. And not only this. Paul says, wait, there's a little bit more here. There's a little bit more than just the justification. There's the living out of that justification in real life. In real life. We not only boast of the glory to come, that's, that's fabulous. We re- rejoice in, in fact, we exalt in our tribulations. That's not what you really signed up for when you became a Christian, was it? You weren't going, you know what, I just cannot have enough trials in my life. I just, I, I just got to get some more. So I'm going to do this Christian thing for a while. No, well, usually when, when we hear the gospel, we think of God's grace and we think of salvation and we think of a life has changed. But, but sometimes he calls us to, to endure. Sometimes he calls us to simply face Trial after trial and struggle after struggle. And we'll see, we'll see a little bit more of that in, in just a moment. But Paul says, I want you to know the glories of tribulation. I want you to understand that we are capable as believers, as those who are justified, as those who are righteous before God, to exalt in tribulation. He doesn't say we glory in spite of them. He doesn't say we rejoice and exalt in the midst of them. He says we Exalt because of them. Because of them. So what is he talking about here? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are 
you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil things against you for my sake. So there are those tribulations that come specifically for the proclamation of the gospel. Those tribulations that come specifically for you're living out your Christian faith and people are persecuting you for it. You face a trial for it. In, perhaps in another country you might be arrested. You might have your belongings taken. You might have your family taken. All because you preach the gospel or live out the Christian life. So Jesus is referencing that sort of persecution in Matthew chapter 5. Paul is talking about those as well as other tribulations that the believer faces. He uses, and, and a lot of writers in the New Testament use tribulations in a little bit of a broader sense. Paul understands that anything we experience in a fallen world, tainted by sin, and by way of trial or tribulation, is a result of the presence of sin, and that falls into that category of tribulation. Okay? Your loved one may not die because, just because you preach the gospel. People die. It's a result of sin. People get hit by cars. It's a result of sin. Okay? It's all those things. And he's saying there are no tribulations which you as believers have endured which you cannot rejoice in which you cannot rejoice in. We're enabled to rejoice in the present suffering for this reason, by justification that is given to us by God. And what does he say? Turn over just a couple pages to Romans chapter 8. This is hard. This is a hard verse. Don't just whip this verse out and give it to somebody. It takes a lot of, of understanding to know what the Lord is talking about here. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. Those are believers. It's not everybody. We're talking about believers here. And when Paul says, God causes all things... Okay, now, if, if somebody who does not understand, you know, we, we've only been talking for 10 minutes or so on justification. I mean, you really need to understand the depth of these things before you can grasp how is it possible that God causes these things. It's killing me with these good things. I'm tired of good things. Give some good things to somebody else, Lord, okay? But yet God causes all those things to work together for my good. Hard to understand. Go a little bit further in Romans chapter 8. Go down to verse 37. We understand that if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is nobody. Nobody can stand against God. But what? We are more than conquerors, verse 37, more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. We don't just conquer a little bit. We conquer the daylights out of the things because God is forced. Who can be against us if God is forced? Now, this doesn't mean that everything you set your hand to will just be peachy and great. Means there are trials, but in the midst of those trials, because we understand that we are justified by faith, by grace, through the work of Christ, we are under that umbrella, and all those things that happen to us under that umbrella of justification, 
are trials and tests, and they purify us, and they strengthen us. They make us more like the things of Christ. So the only way that you can rejoice in any tribulation is to know that every tribulation, you're seeing a picture of God who is for you, who will never let you go, who actually causes things to come into our lives for our good, that shape us. Now, for the unbeliever who looks at these things, they're shaking their head and going, you've got to be kidding me. This is crazy talk. But yet for the believer who understands our love our Heavenly Father has for us, these words are the words of life themselves. Paul is able to say that we can rejoice in our present sufferings because nothing in this universe can stand against us because God stands for us. Sproul says, yet no shower falls unpermitted from the threatening cloud. Every drop has its order ere it hastens to the earth. The trials which come from God are sent to prove and to strengthen our graces. And so at once to illustrate the power of divine grace and to test the genuineness of our virtues and to add to their energy. God doesn't say, I'm just going to crush you. And leave you there. He says, I'm going to crush you and you're going to be better for it. You're going to be pure for it. Back to Romans chapter 5. So let's look at the end of verse 3 and 4. And not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations knowing what? So here's here's an explanation of what these tribulations do for us. Tribulations brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. Hope does not disappoint. Why? Because we looked at what biblical hope is previously. Nothing in our experience nor any tribulation is designed to destroy us. But every tribulation is designed for our growth, for our sanctification, to make us more and more like the things of Christ. So tribulation brings about perseverance. Tribulations bring about perseverance. It's not there to destroy us. It's there to build us up. Therefore, Paul says, we can glory, we can exult in our trial and tribulation. Let's go back to the psalm, Psalm 11. So we come back with that understanding from his eyelids test the sons of men. We're talking about the test that comes upon the righteous and the great opportunities for growth that are there. I mean, the God, uh, Lord knows what we're doing. He sees every hurt in our lives, every pain, every sorrow. He's using that for our growth. Let's look at David's life, okay? Let's take a 30,000-foot look at David's life. He's not tending the sheep. He's the youngest. He's, the, he's not the runt of the family, but he's the youngest. So he gets the, the jobs that the older brothers no longer want. So he's out in the fields. What happens to him? A bear comes along. Bear wants to eat the sheep. Bear wants to eat David. And when he fights off the bear, what comes next? Lion. Lion wants to eat the sheep. Lion wants to eat David. What comes next? A giant. A giant who has no respect for the things of God. David goes out there, what? With lots of armor? No, only the armor of God. Stones in a sling. What happens? The giant goes down. What happens next? Saul decides, I've got to kill this guy and chases him for like 17 years through the desert. All he wants to do is kill David. And if the temptations and the trials from outside of his life were not bad enough, then there are the temptations and trials that David faced in his own heart. 
I mean, after the bear and the lion and the giant and Saul came his own heart. And there he stands. It was the spring when kings go out to war and David stands on his balcony and he looks down upon the city and who should he set his eyes upon? Bathsheba. And because of that, he was an adulterer and a liar and a murderer. Those were temptations from his own heart. What did they do? He confessed his sin to God, threw himself before the Lord, and he was a fabulous king, a man after God's own heart. So when believers have fought with one sorrow, we're going to fight with another sorrow, another tribulation. When we fight, and when we're done fighting with that tribulation, we're going to fight with another one. It's like a never-ending pile of work orders on your desk, right? Tend to them, and there's profit. Ignore them, and there's poverty. Tend to the trials in your life and those tribulations and understand them. There is profit there. Hate God for it, and you will find spiritual poverty. All right, back to verse 5. What about the wicked? The short answer, wicked are in trouble. Okay, this is a short answer. God prepares his judgment for the wicked. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Now, you might have a translation there that says coals or something like that. Okay, uh, snares, coals, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that in just, just a second, why that might be uh, important. But fire and brimstone, that's going to bring us immediately to Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? The Lord sometimes just reigns through judgment, fire, and brimstone. So you cannot escape the clear evidence that judgment will fall upon the wicked. It's all through Scripture. It's coming, it's coming. Sometimes it comes through fire through heaven. We see it in the Old Testament. Sometimes it comes through the sword of the Babylonians or the Assyrians when Israel has been disobedient and the Lord says, I'm going to judge you through the use of Nebuch- through the actions of Nebuchadnezzar or, or one of the other ones. And sometimes judgment comes in death. And then, when you close your eyes in death, you open them and you face an eternal judgment. We just know it is promised to those who are outside of Christ. Now, judgment upon the wicked can be stayed, and sometimes it can be delayed. It can be delayed or stayed. The best best sermon ever preached was by a guy who didn't want to preach it. Jonah walks through Nineveh and says... Seven days, the Lord's going to bring judgment. And he walked through the whole town, and the whole city repented. They put sackcloth on the cows. They wanted to repent so much. Okay? And then, what, what, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? Lord, if I find 50 righteous men, will you spare it? Sure. How about 40? Sure. 30? Sure. 20? Sure. 10? If he could find 10 righteous men in the city of Sodom, the Lord would spare it. There weren't 10 righteous men. So sometimes it can be stayed, sometimes it can be delayed. Now verse 6 here, upon the wicked he will rain snares, sometimes snares, sometimes coals as I said. Now if we look at the word snares, who snares us? Satan. Satan snares us. Okay, so if we, if we think about that, um, typically there are things associated with Satan. And I think what this points to is that the wicked will pursue things that will prove to be their own judgment. They will be ensnared by sins that they love. They will be ensnared by things that they think will promote their own agenda. When in reality, like we learned last week, they're digging a pit which is going to bury them. 
They dig a pit with their own sin, and they will be placed in there. Punishment is their portion. Now in Psalm 16, what is the portion of the righteous? It says, the Lord is my portion and my cup. The portion of the wicked is sin. The portion of the righteous is the Lord. The Lord. And finally, this wonderful little bit in verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. He loves it, and it is his character. In fact, it would be against his character if he didn't pursue and help those who are righteous. If he didn't care for those who are righteous, that would run contrary to his character if he did not defend his own. Spurgeon says, why do we fear? For if God approves and men oppose, what does it matter? I mean, think about our actions in our world. Are we more afraid of offending men or offending God? Which is it? Uh, There are times we're afraid of offending men because we know there are going to be immediate consequences if we offend men, but we can offend God a little bit and seek forgiveness later. Again, Spurgeon. All events are under the control of providence. Consequently, all the trials of our outward life are traceable at once to that great first cause. That would be the Lord. Out of God's ordinance, the armies of trial march forth in array, clad in iron armor and armed with the weapons of war. Even our mercies like roses have their thorns. Even our mercies like roses have their thorns. There's a book, if you've never read it, I would encourage you to find it. It's written by a pupil of C.S. Lewis, Van, Van Valken, or... Uh, I can't, can't, sorry, I can't remember the author. The name is Severe Mercies. Severe Mercies. It is a killer of a book. But sometimes the mercies in our lives are severe. But they take us and they shape us and they make us more like Christ. It's the story of a man and the death of his wife. And, and, and Lewis, <clears throat> Lewis helps him through these. And he gives him, in one of his letters, he gives him this note He says, you have faced a severe mercy. That's what the Lord does to us sometimes. Even our roses have their thorns. And in the end, what is it that we desire more than anything else? The upright will behold his face. The promise to all who are righteous is that you will see our Heavenly Father. So let's pray. Lord, sometimes your words, these words of life, these words to the righteous are hard for us to understand. But yet they are true. And if you are for us, if you are ordering this world for our good, so that we might be more Christ-like, so that our actions would be for your glory, so that the dross of our impurities might be scraped off, that we, we might be more fit for heaven. Help us see these things and rest in the fact that we belong to you. And the trials may come, but we can exalt in them knowing what your purposes are. Lord, Your word says that your grace is more than sufficient for us so that we might see all things through, not on our own strength, but because of your grace. 
because of your care, because of your power in our lives. Let us not rest on our own understanding, on our own power, but to delight in the things of Christ and in his finished work. Lord, we come to you in his name. Amen.